Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm usually, and I'm not patting myself on my own horn, uh, uh, a compass metas kind of a guy, I think. Uh, but this week, I make no assurances about that. I've, I've been, this is my fourth city uh, since I've spoken to you last. And, uh, you know, the brain, the brain gets scrambled after a while. So I'm, I'm really not responsible for what comes out of my mouth today. I can only guarantee you one thing. There won't be any fat chicks jokes. So you know that I'm not going to be the new host of The Daily Show. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the stress of growing up poor can hurt a child's brain development even before birth, according to research published in Nature Neuroscience magazine. I read it for the ads. Even very small differences in income can have major effects on the brain. Researchers have long suspected that children's behavior and cognitive abilities are linked to their socioeconomic status, particularly for those who are very poor. In the largest study of its kind, a team led by neuroscientists from Columbia and Children's Hospital in Los Angeles looked into the biological underpinnings of these effects. They imaged the brains of 1,099 children. Man, that one other kid didn't show up. That's people. You know, adolescents and young adults in several U.S. cities, because people with lower incomes in this country are likely to be from minority ethnic groups. And what's wrong with that? Why do you hate freedom? The team mapped each child's genetic ancestry and then adjusted the calculations so that the effects of poverty would not be skewed by the small differences in brain structure between ethnic groups. The brains of children from the lowest income bracket less than 25 grand a year, had up to 6% less surface area than those of children from families making more than $150,000 a year, according to this research. Yes, the money actually buys brain surface. I don't know where they sell it, but in children from the poorest families, income disparities of a few thousand dollars were associated with major differences in brain structure, particularly in areas associated with language and decision-making skills. Children's scores on tests measuring cognitive skills, such as reading and memory, uh, uh, um, what is that again? Memory, memory ability, also declined with parental income. A cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Pennsylvania calls the research unbelievably cool. <laughs> Why do we let these people in? Having such a large sample of children allowed the researchers to show the great impact of poverty in developing brains, according to this. Scientist, according, although the study cannot measure how individual brains change over time. That would be really cool. That would be so cool, scientifically speaking. It's, uh, it's precisely cool. And, ladies and gentlemen, our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia have uh, faced off against the mean old Canadians. If you're picking fights with Canadians, you are in a truculent mood, I, I have to say. The Saudi Arabians have warned the government of Quebec, oh well, Quebec, on top of it there, that not to interfere in the case of the flogged blogger, or the blogged flogger, Raf Badawi. Badawi's Saudi family is in exile in, Canada, in Quebec, specifically, after he was jailed and sentenced to a thousand lashes for writing unfavorable blogs about the freedom-loving kingdom. Quebec and other international governments 
have criticized the sentence and urged Saudi Arabia not to continue the flogging. It has not resumed since the first 50 for medical reasons. The Saudi ambassador to Canada, Naif bin al-Sudairi, said the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, made a kingdom by the Brits before they skedaddled, quote, does not accept any form of interference in its internal affairs. The kingdom does not accept any at any attack on it in the name of human rights, especially when its constitution is based on Islamic law, which guarantees the rights of human humans and preserves his blood, money, honor, and dignity, he wrote in the letter, adding he blamed international human rights agencies and the media for tarnishing Saudi Arabia's reputation. Guilty as charged, babe. And I'm not a human rights organization. The Quebec Immigration and Diversity Minister, interesting, said the government would not be intimidated by the Saudi letter. Quote, no backing down. This is Canadians talking. Continuing, we're going to pursue the mobilization that we began. It's important for Quebecers to express themselves, the minister was quoted as saying. And uh, the Quebec premier has previously reiterated his government support for Badawi and his family. Quote, we will not put our arms down. The democratic world has to say loud and clear we don't want those practices to go again without notice from the rest of the world. To go again there. Canada standing up to our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. Hello, welcome to the show.
From New Orleans, Louisiana, home of the French Quarter Festival next weekend, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this week's edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? Copyrighted feature of this broadcast, of course. Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen. Well, using a multi-generational experiment, University of Technology at Sydney researchers have shown for the first time that when reef fish parents develop from early life at elevated temperatures, they can adjust their offspring's sex, that is to say gender, through non-genetic and non-behavioral means. How do they do it? Voodoo. No. Uh, the study published in Global Chi- Climate Change Biology demonstrates that the mechanisms involved in restoring offspring sex ratios across generations are switched on during early development of the parents and do not simply occur as a result of adults being exposed to higher temperatures. Understanding the ability of species to respond and cope with rising environmental temperatures is key to predicting the biological consequences of global warming, said the lead author of the study. The ability to compensate for the sex bias caused by rising temperatures that what causes it. Oh, I see, the gender bias in the offspring. I get what they're saying now. Is an important trait that could help constrain the impact of ocean warming on reef fish populations and other species. However, the research also suggests that when developmental temperatures are too hot, there's a limit to the transgenerational plasticity. One word, plasticity. The research findings are significant because global warming poses a threat to species with temperature-dependent sex determination, TSD, such as reptiles and fish, particularly uh, uh, potentially skewing the sex ratio of offspring and consequently breeding individuals in a population, according to the researchers. That's, ki- I guess, kind of good news in a tempered, tempered good news. But the intergenerational... Who knew about the intergenerational plasticity? I'm calling it the IP. California's mountain snowpack will do little to shake the uh, the drought this summer. Only the tallest peaks are dusted with snow. The most recent survey showed the driest snowpack in more than 100 years. We're not only setting a new low, we're completely obliterating the previous record, says uh, the chief of the California Department of Water Resources Snow Surveys section. There's a job they didn't tell you about at high school counseling. The Sierra Nevada snowpack typically supplies 30% of California's water. This year, the snowpack's water content was just 5% of the average amount in the northern Sierra, 6% in the central and southern Sierra Nevada. At four key survey sites, they found no snow at all. Hey, let's go drill for oil there. 
The snowpack's previous record low, 25% of the average, was set during an earlier severe drought in 1977 and was repeated, why, just last year. The statewide snow records officially start in 1950. Some areas the records reach back to 1909. With the snowpack essentially wiped out, the governor announced California's first ever statewide mandatory water restrictions, as you know. Rip out your lawns, homeowners. White. And what about the rice? The rice growing and alfalfa. But the rice. California, agriculture in California is the biggest user of water. I think 80% goes to agriculture. And we grow in California. They, well, I'm sometimes there. We, they, grow some of the most water-thirsty crops on the planet. That makes sense. One bright spot this year is that two atmospheric rivers helped to fill crucial reservoirs in Northern California, Shasta Lake and Lake Oroville. That supplies irrigation and drinking water for farmers and cities. All right, then, we'll have rice and help power hydroelectric dams. The picture is bleak in areas further south that were bypassed by those storms. This year, drought will also have a severe impact on natural ecosystems such as fish that need cold water runoff to spawn and trees that depend on snowmelt during the dry summer months. More. Clearing grasslands to make way for biofuels may seem counterproductive. University of Wisconsin-Madison researchers show in a study that crops, including corn and soy, commonly used for biofuels, expanded onto 7 million acres of new land in the United States over a recent four-year period, replacing millions of acres of grasslands. The study, published in the journal Environmental Research Letters, addresses the debate over whether the recent boom in demand for biofuel crops has led to carbon-emitting conversion of natural areas like grasslands. It also reveals loopholes in U.S. policies that may contribute to these unintended consequences. Who knew? We realized there was remarkably limited information about how croplands have expanded across the United States in recent years, says the lead author of the study. Our results are surprising because they show large-scale conversions of new landscapes, which most people didn't expect, unquote. The conversion to corn and soy alone, say the researchers, could have emitted as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as 34 coal-fired power plants operating for one year, the equivalent of eh, 28 million more cars on the road. The study is the first comprehensive analysis of land use change across the United States during the last uh, half decade or so in the critical time period following passage of the Federal Renewable Fuel Standard Law, or Act, or Standard, and during a new era of agriculture and biofuel demand. The results may aid policymakers. Congress decides whether to reform or repeal parts of the renewable fuel standard, which requires blending of gasoline with biofuels that are supposed to be grown only on pre-existing cropland in order to minimize land use change and its associated greenhouse gas emissions. But they didn't figure it that with the demand would be be thing about... New, non, new renewable generating capacity broke the 100 gigawatt barrier in 2014. I didn't know such a barrier existed. I've never run up against it. Nonetheless, this is equivalent to the entire fleet of nuclear power plants in the U.S., the generation generating capacity thereof. This according to a U.N. report. <laughs> the U.N. Global investment in renewable energy last year increased by 17%. Investors attracted by the increasing cost effectiveness and low risk of the solar and wind sectors. The analysis was published by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. 
He's got his finger in a lot of pies. The reinsurance now to the matter of who is uh, concerned about the effects of climate change, ladies and gentlemen, as we conclude the Listen to the Warm segment. We, we round the thir- round third of the Listen to the Warm segment and head for home. It's often said that uh, why it's alarmists, ecological extremists. This, and it's also said that, that uh, a lot of them are just pure nutters. So today comes the president of the Reinsurance Association of America. That's an industry that insures insurance companies to help reduce risk associated with the policies and are right. He says, the consequences of climate change are quite real to our industry. It will have a significant impact on the economy going forward. From the underwriter's perspective, encouraging people to build on coastal areas, barrier islands, and other high-risk areas inevitably raises the risk level and the exposure not only by property values, including high-value homes, but by the cost of repair and recovery. The cost of climate change has to be factored in both in public and private insurance, he says. Also concerned, wildfires exacerbated by climate change that expose more and more homes and businesses to losses covered by insurance. He calls for long-term investment in mitigating losses, better land use planning, better building codes, the greater use of green infrastructure to protect properties, and a change in philosophy in government. This is the president of the Reinsurance Association of America. Oh, by the way, his name is Frank Nutter. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. On an environmental topic, loosely related, I guess, because it's about the environment, we're pretty much at the five-year mark of the uh, oil here off the Louisiana, the, the Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas coasts. Thanks to the good people at BP, and BP has commercials on the air today bragging on how how much they've spent to help bring the Gulf back, both the business, the economy and the ecology, don't you know? This report from Science Magazine from Barataria Bay, a pocket of islands, inlets, and bayous which endured some of the heaviest oiling. Researchers uh, have flocked to the bay, like entomologist Linda Hooper Bowie, seeking to understand the spill's impacts. The scientists are finding both damage and remarkable resilience. The oil has clearly left its mark on the ecosystem. Nature has bounced back in surprising ways. Shrimp are back on the seafloor. Brown pelicans are back in the air. But after five years, researchers remain uncertain about whether the biological tapestry frayed by oil might still unravel in unexpected ways. Take the acrobat ant, please. Just for lunch, uh, they're named for the way they point their abdomens in the air when they're pestered. I know the feeling, babe. They essentially disappeared from the oiled study sites examined by this entomologist, Linda hooper Bui. New colonies would get started each spring but would vanish by the end of the summer. Measurements of the ants' bodies yielded a clue. Those in the oiled areas had smaller heads, a sure sign of malnourishment or having poor parents. Hooper Bowie has documented a decline of other insects on oiled sites. Experiments with caged katydids left in the marsh suggest insects are killed by substances released by buried oil. In the summer, during low tides, the heat cracks the old caked oil on the surface and lets relatively fresh oil ooze up. Ooze up, everybody. 
The fumes might be killing insects that the ants like to eat or keeping the ants from leaving their grass stems to look for food, something Hooper Bowie has observed in lab tests. They'd rather starve to death when there's oil present, she says. Well, it's freedom of choice for the ants, isn't it? Now, says Hooper Bowie, this is the first year we've seen the ants start to come back and stay in oiled areas. It's very exciting. Uh, ant colonies have climbed back to 10% of normal. That's the good news, ladies and gentlemen. And other insect numbers were higher, too. We're cautiously saying there might be recovery. Marsh uh, erosion was one of the biggest threats to the bay even before the spill. How's the marsh itself doing? Well, soon after the spill, scientists watch, er, watched erosion go into overdrive, doubling in some areas because oil killed the vegetation that held marsh muck in place. The oil may continue to boost erosion by weakening plant roots or by altering bacteria populations deep in the soil, according to a separate study. Oil acts like a fertilizer. Well, all right then. I'll be uh, <laughs> I'll be siphoning gasoline into my garden. If I fueling a boom in carbon-eating microbes that feast on the petroleum, these same bacteria can eat away at the layer of rich organic matter that helps bind the marsh together, says a colleague of Hooper Buies at LSU and a leading expert on the decline of Louisiana's wetlands. He found that erosion in some oiled areas started accelerating several years after the spill, and that it appears tied to the weakening of this deep layer. He estimates the spill has led to the loss of up to five square kilometers of coastal wetlands in Louisiana. The pace of erosion in the bay is startling. Five years ago, researchers placed plastic poles along the marsh's shoreline to mark the places hit by oil. Today, the poles stand 20 meters offshore. Surrounded by water. Just keep that in mind. And by the way, they are a British company. David Cameron, the British Prime Minister, in uh, debating this week over whether his government had done enough to uh, curb tax evasion by British companies, cited they were side of the instance of them cracking down on British companies such as BP. And now... He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you don't have to repeat me. I, I'm perfectly capable without the uh, aid of Repetition. I said without the aid of repetition. Dateline Albany, New York. Children in five states, including New York, who are on Medicaid, are being prescribed antipsychotic drugs for too long at too young an age. According to a report from the Health and Human Services Department's Office of Inspector General. Second generation antipsychotics are widely, <coughs> pardon me, are widely used to treat children enrolled in Medicaid who have mental health conditions, according to the report. Those drugs have been, quote, previously found to cause serious side effects, and little clinical research has been conducted on the treatment of children with these drugs, unquote. Well, they're in an experiment. So are we all. The grand experiment, ladies and gentlemen. The report, which reviewed Medicaid claims from a sampling of children from New York, California, Florida, Illinois, and Texas, big states, identified quality of care concerns in 67% of the claims for antipsychotic drugs prescribed to children. 
multiple problems they found. Roughly 17% of the claims were, ch- were for children too young to take the drugs. In 41% of claims, the drugs prescribed were the wrong treatment. Reviewers also found that in 53% of the claims, children's use of the drugs was poorly monitored. 34% of the children were taking the drugs for too long, and 37% of the claims showed children were mixing too many different kinds of antipsychotic drugs. Federal attention on the issue of possible overprescription of controlled substances for children on Medicaid has intensified in recent years. A 2011 federal report found children in foster care were nine times more likely to be prescribed psychotropic drugs than other children. And a New York State Department Health Department drug utilization review showed thousands of New York children on Medicaid were being prescribed the powerful stimulants Ritalin and Adderall even though they'd never been diagnosed with ADHD, for which those are allegedly good treatment. New York children on Medicaid were also far more likely to be medicated for ADHD than other children, according to the state's review. Weren't we supposed to also, oh, I say, just say no to prescription drugs, to uh, non-prescription drugs. I get it. The others are fine. Agents of the drug, speaking of the war on drugs, the other side of the picture here, illegal drugs. Agents of the Drug Enforcement Administration reportedly had sex parties with prostitutes hired by drug cartels in Colombia. According to an Inspector General report from the Justice Department. In addition, Colombian police officials allegedly provided protection for the DEA agents' weapons and property during the parties. To attend DEA agents, later admitted attending the parties, some of the agents were actually punished. Suspensions for from two to ten days, you see. These are guys who will seize your property, bust up your house, if they think, you know. The stunning allegations are part of an investigation by the Justice Department's Inspector General into claims of sexual harassment and misconduct within DEA, FBI, and ATF, and the Marshal Service. The IG's office found the DEA didn't even fully cooperate with the Inspector General's probe. The DEA sex parties in Colombia are by far the most damaging allegations. Foreign officer allegedly arranged sex parties with prostitutes funded by the local drug cartels for these DEA agents at their government-based least, uh, sorry, government-leased quarters over a period of several years, said the IG report. It was a thing. The parties reportedly took place from 2005 to 2008. The DEA's Office of Professional Responsibility became aware of them only in 2010 after it received an anonymous complaint. DEA supervisors, however, had been aware of the allegations for several years because of complaints from management of the building in which the DEA office in Bogota was leased. (laughs) The landlord was ticked about the parties, you see, ladies and gentlemen. Although some of the DEA agents participating in these parties denied it, the information in the case file suggested they should have known the prostitutes in attendance were paid with cartel funds. The foreign officers further alleged that in addition to soliciting prostitutes, three DEA special agents in particular were provided money, expensive gifts, and weapons from drug cartel members. I guess they were the drug cartel's bitches. The, I, the Inspector General's office asserts the DEA officials did not fully comply with their requests for information during the probe. Therefore, they add, the IG's office adds, we cannot be completely confident that the FBI and DEA provided us with all information relevant to this review. How much worse can it get? That is your brain, ladies and gentlemen. 
on the war on drugs. And that's news of Inspector General. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Um, One more note. News of the Olympic movement. Olympic Boston is going to hold a referendum on whether it should have host the Olympics in 2024, the Summer Olympics. This, of course, is after the United States Olympic Committee has chosen Boston as its city, representative of the United States, to bid for those Olympics. The Boston Globe reports Olympic referenda, like the one Boston is proposed to have for next year, usually result in thumbs down from local electorates worried about runaway costs. Munich, 52% against. Krakow, 70% against. That's why they pulled out of the race for the Winter Games. And why Denver, 60%, gave the 1976 Winter Games back. Um, Political parties sometimes will anticipate the public mood. That's what happened to Rome for the 2020 Summer Olympics and Oslo and Stockholm for 2022. It's no coincidence, points out the Boston Globe, that the only two remaining contenders for the 2022 Games are Beijing and Almaty, Kazakhstan, whose totalitarian governments would never submit bids for a popular vote. It's a movement, ladies and gentlemen, and we all need one every day. forget you I'll never forget you I'll never forget how we promised one day to love one another forever that way we said we never
with a sigh And then love dies But we'll go on living A wrong way of living So you take the high road And I'll take the low This time that we parted Is much better so But kiss me From New Orleans, this is Le Show. Ladies and gentlemen, a, a while back, way, way, way back, last century, I think, this program used to have a, a running feature in which uh, the host of the broadcast uh, read uh, news items about celebrity home sales and uh, made snarky comments about about the process and about the homes and about the sales and about the celebrities and about the host of the program. Uh, th- that's gone away, but this sort of brings it back a little bit from the Wall Street Journal about a house for sale in Southern California. It was a lifelong love of gardening that led to Gavin Herbert's ownership of one of Southern California's most storied and valuable coastal properties. He, Herbert, is the retired founder and CEO of Allergan, a uh, nearly $70 billion pharmaceuticals company. The property in question, Casa Pacifica, Richard Nixon's so-called Western White House. Now it will hit the market for $75 million. Herbert, 83 years old, is selling the estate after 35 years of ownership, is looking for a buyer who will continue to care for the property. It's a 5.5-acre estate in San Clemente, California. It has more than 15,000 square feet of living space over a main house, guest houses, or Las Gasthaus, Das Gasthaus, and staff quarters, and 450 feet of ocean frontage. The uh, largest stretch of available residential oceanfront south of Los Angeles. Prices for vacant waterfront lots in Orange County typically sell for 5 to $10 million for a quarter acre, says the sales agent. It's one of a kind. In 1969, six months into his presidency, Nixon and some business partners mm-hmm, bought the property, then 26 acres, for a million and a half from the widow of the original owner. He dubbed it La Casa Pacifica. At the time, Herbert, who had founded Allergan earlier, was finance chairman for the president's Orange County re-election campaign. Introduced to Nixon's property by Nixon's chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, Herbert, who was a longtime gardening enthusiast and then co-owner of a garden center in Newport Beach, volunteered for the role of head gardener on the property despite his busy career. In gardening, says Herbert, you get instant gratification. He stayed on in his gardener's role even after taking his company public. The home is designed in a Spanish colonial style. The main residence was designed in the 1920s, inspired the designer by 
the mayor's residence in San Sebastian, Spain. The Nixon, used, the Nixon family used the home for retreats and strategic meetings. He retreated to his home in San Clemente after his resignation and wrote his memoirs there. He sold the estate to Herbert in 1980 in a private sale. Herbert declines to give the price. It couldn't be learned in public records. He and his partners developed the property into a gated subdivision with 14 other houses. Nixon, of course, is not uh, living anymore. About 25 years ago, Herbert added an octagonal poolside pavilion and decorated it with photos of visiting dignitaries. More recently, he remodeled the main house, rebuilding about 30% and putting in a basement. He also replaced a living room fireplace, donating the original to the Nixon Library. Selling it has been a very hard decision, says Herbert. I think my, my wife and I were caretakers. We care a lot about who the next caretakers would be. I don't think he's the only one who cares a lot. We're in receipt of another tape from Nixon in Heaven. You, uh, you, you texted Jesus Haldeman, don't you? Don't you knock? <laughs> no, sir, I don't for the simple reason that there aren't any doors up here. No, I, I know, but there aren't any doors on the Microsoft cloud either. But uh, this is a real cloud. Uh-huh. So it doesn't crash? No, no, it doesn't. No. Uh, so you... Texted me. I mean, at least you could say hello just to avoid startling. Well, I, I said so. You texted me, which yeah. was a businesslike kind of way of saying. Well, never mind. I mean, it's a it's your right to barge in here if you so desire. Anybody <laughs> can. That's sort of the price you pay for being up here, where everybody is uh, supposedly so damn good and all. Well, it does mean that uh, you can trust. Oh, the- just because somebody's got a pair of wings on doesn't mean they're not casting a. Covetous eye. Well, I, I think you can rest easy on that. No, no. I mean, Hoover said when he went out for a power walk on the, just on the cloud next door, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. some of his files were taken. <laughs> well, in all honesty, sir, Hoover's lucky to be here. Oh. Now, you see, I think, and, and as you know, we had our disagreements, mm-hmm. but I think the fellow's gotten a bad rap. I mean, uh, he did keep the communists from taking over the State Department. And well, no, you don't have to sell me on him, sir. I was part of the committee that got him accepted up here. Yeah. Anyway, you texted. You bet your bippy I did. <laughs> I learned that from the laughing people. Yeah. They were always saying, you bet your bippy. No, I know. <laughs> My friend Paul Keyes worked on the show. Mm-hmm. And he, he could never tell me what a bippy was. So, so there's something I can work on? No, I don't think. I mean, at this late date, I don't even know... Uh, who you'd go to about figuring out what a bippy was. Agree. But it, but anything else? Like like the reason you texted me? Well, strictly speaking, I didn't text anything. Rebozo's kid does all that type of work. But yeah. Yes, I'm very concerned about uh, our friend, Mr. Herbert, selling the uh, San Clemente house. Well, I know, but... La Casa Pacifica. Hmm. It means the house of peace. Hmm. I thought that would piss off the fellow travelers. Well, Mr. Herbert has a perfect right to sell. He oh. paid you good money for the house, as I recall. Oh, look, Haldeman, I know you uh, thought highly of the guy, but uh, he's only asking, what is it, uh, 75? 75 million. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a record for the... Well, I know, a, but... A record for the area, uh, or the state, or something. No, but you see... I mean, he, I, he took great care of the place. Yeah. He 
turned it in more of a museum than your damn library will ever be. Oh, well, honey, you're not, you're, look, you're not going to get an argument from me about the light and the loafers people who run that library. <laughs> Let's just say they won't be able to get a, a shave or a haircut in a, any barber shop in Muncie. No, but no, but I'm just saying... 80% of the barbers in Muncie are born again. Did you know that? I didn't. All right, but but this Herbert fellow, what do we have on him? Well, he was one of your supporters. That's why we arranged the loan for him to buy the house in the first place. Well, I know, but I mean, the fellow is only asking seventy-five million for it, which is no, uh, no, I know it's a low-ball price in light of the. Well, I mean, forget the house. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. treat it as a teardown. Mm -hmm. you know, just as raw land, the ocean view. No, no, it's 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 spectacular. Of, of course, but still. Lowballing a unique property like this, mm -hmm. and of course, well, I'm up here. I have no idea about the comparables. Well, no, I mean we we haven't got sure, but uh, the resources to make him raise his asking price. Well, we, of course, uh, but we could get uh, well, uh, we could get the uh, Cubans to uh, ransack uh, his office. I mean, I know it would be uh, wrong, but uh, we could do it. The Cubans are with us here. Yeah. They're watched every minute. Oh, I know. But, uh, I mean, it, that's just one reason. Well, and of course, <laughs> you don't hear the Democrats and the liberals and the whole civil liberties crowd complaining about uh, the surveilling of the Cubans. Yeah. No, no, that's true. You don't. Because, you see, the left admires the people who run this place. Of course. But $75 million is a, a pretty hefty asking price. If you well, sure. But if, if John Q. private citizen had lived in it, of course, oceanfront property and all that, but yeah. I'm thinking about legacy and so forth, and, yeah. and not just mine, of course, because uh, well, yours is, is pretty much set at this point. Well, but now uh, there's, there's going to be a whole new generation. No, of, uh, no, no, I know the generation of historians who uh, who hated you is, is dying out. And that's right. That's right. They're dying out. Yeah. We knew this would happen. That's right. That's, uh, that's what happens to the haters. That's right. But... I'm thinking about your legacy, too, Alvin. This property is undervalued, mm -hmm. goes for too little, and so forth. Yeah. I mean, that, to uh, to the common mind, you can't help but uh, diminish you just a little bit. Not that it's fair, but... Uh, well, oh, all due respect, yeah. I never did think too much about my legacy uh, up till the time of the prosecution. Uh -huh. Then I thought about it a lot, and I stopped thinking about it again until after I left prison. Oh, God damn it, Haldeman, I just find it very hard to believe... That this fellow, whom we entrusted with this house and alone, and alone, yeah. all of it, yeah. that uh, he now goes, turns around, and uh, well, and of course it shouldn't surprise me at all because no, uh, no, I know another supporter deserts you when you need him the most. That's right. That's absolutely right. But I mean, uh, you don't put in a basement that's out in California. That's no, I, I, I saw some of the photos. It what was, you see, I mean, poor Pat nearly had a thrombosis when she saw what they'd done to the place. I mean, we came back, of course, against my better judgment, to have dinner with him one night, thank him, you know, for uh, all the campaign support. That's right. That's right. Particularly the money. Yeah. And, uh, and now, of course, he lowballs the place, which doesn't hurt his name any. Uh, Just yours. That's right. And yours. Well, <laughs> there's not a damn thing we can do about it. No. No. I mean, uh, we could... Uh, we could try to goose the bidding, I suppose. But, well, uh, but the danger there is that you're the winning bidder, and then and I'm stuck with the damn place all over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And dealing with it from here. That's right. It doesn't stop, does it? You want me to buy for some coffee? I'm fine.
Now, the Apologies of the Week. We're so sorry. First of all, from uh, Chicago, WSCR Sports Radio Jock. I said Jock. Dan Bernstein apologized for remarks he made previous night about Comcast Sportsnet Chicago reporter Ayana Crystal. During a Twitter conversation about her on air performance, Bernstein commented on her boobs. I'm an idiot, he said the next day. There are certain times when you can be childish and crass, and there are other times when it's just really stupid to be a child. My tweet was childish, my tweet was crass and unnecessary, and I'm sorry I dragged an innocent person into it. I was doing a job, and I made an observation I shouldn't have made, and it was childish and silly and stupid. That's how apologies go when you got three hours to fill. Saudi Arabia was in a separate story, heard earlier on this broadcast. A woman who posed for a photo, smiling and flashing a peace sign in front of the site of last week's deadly explosion in the East Village in New York, has apologized. It was inconsiderate to those hurt in the crash and to the city of New York, the woman, Christina Freundlich, wrote in an email to the Des Moines Register. What happened last week in the East Village is not to be taken lightly, and I regret my course of action. Freundlich, a former communications director for the Iowa Democratic Party, posted the photo to her Instagram account. A day after the blast leveled three buildings and left 22 people injured and two missing. Her caption, scene of the accident. The selfie thing, ladies and gentlemen. Even without the stick. Representative Jason Chaffetz received personal apologies from the Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson and Secret Service Director Joseph Cheney. Joseph Clancy, sorry. After details that he had once been rejected as a job applicant by... The Secret Service were leaked to a reporter. Secretary Johnson has called for an investigation. If the allegations in the report are true, those responsible should be held accountable, said a spokeswoman for the Department of Homeland Security. She said Johnson apologized to Chaffetz, Republican of Utah, for being put in a situation that he had to acknowledge a matter that should have been kept confidential. Chaffetz said he wouldn't let the episode change his investigation into security lapses involving, guess what, the Secret Service. The Daily Beast reported that Chaffetz this is the leak. The Chaffetz had applied to the Secret Service in either 2002 or 2003, received a rejection letter. Chaffetz said it was because he was too old to apply. He would have been 36. The New York Police Department detective, seen on video screaming and cursing at an Uber driver, has apologized for his actions, saying... He hopes to buy the driver dinner. I apologize. I sincerely apologize, said Detective Patrick Cherry, whose tirade was captured by one of the car's passengers and posted on YouTube. Here's some of the non-profane part of it. I don't know where you where you're coming from, or where you think you're appropriate in doing that. That doesn't. It's not the way it works. How long have you been in this country? Almost two years. Almost how long? Two years. Two years. I got news for you, and use this lesson. Remember this in the future. Don't ever do that again. The only reason you're not in handcuffs going to jail and getting summonses in the precinct is because I have things to do. 
That's the only reason that's not happening. Because this isn't important enough for me. You're not important enough. Cherry's apology came after the detective was stripped of his badge and gun and transferred out of the FBI's elite Joint Terrorism Task Force. <laughs> Police Commissioner Bill Bratton uh, also admonished Cherry after the video went viral, saying no good cop can watch that without a wince. And a, and a chuckle. Just a little bit of a chuckle, too, don't you think? A student newspaper at the University of Virginia has apologized for an April Fool's issue in which it published a satirical piece that referenced civil rights hero Rosa Parks. The Cavalier Daily article entitled, Everybody Move to the Back of Zeta Psi Hosts Rosa Parks Party. Everyone Move to the Back of the Bus, Zeta Psi Hosts Rosa Parks Party, appeared to be intended to poke fun at some fraternity's insensitivity-themed galas. In the piece, a frat holds a celebration focused on the outcast song, Rosa Parks. After the moving the articles from its website, the Cavalier Daily published a mea culpa on Wednesday. Our intention was not to perpetuate stereotypes, but to highlight the offensive nature of those themed parties in the past. Again, our readers were hurt by this piece, and that makes the publication inexcusable, unquote. Which only raises the question, isn't that supposed to be in the humor magazine? Not in the newspaper on April 1st? I know, April 1st. It's a newspaper, ladies and gentlemen. Veterans Affairs Deputy Secretary Sloan Gibson apologized this week for the hospital project in Aurora, Colorado, that became a $1.73 billion boondoggle and tried to reassure Colorado veterans that they'll see the hospital finished in two years. Gibson conducted a tour of the construction site with a brief news conference. I would say we're making progress here, he said. Construction is a shade over half done. He was vague about when he realized the VA hospital project's costs in Colorado were spiring way over the $600 million construction budget, noting he just came aboard 14 months ago. He noted that the VA's construction chief retired after the $1.73 billion price tag for the Aurora Medical Campus was announced, and the VA has ceded project management to the Army Corps of Engineers. That'll get her done. Deadline Beijing, Myanmar, has accepted responsibility and apologized for bombs dropped on Chinese territory last month that killed five people, China's foreign ministry said this week. The incident happened during clashes between Myanmar government forces and a rebel group called the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army, the MNDAA. I love their telethon. Thousands of refugees have fled to China as fighting flared on the Myanmar side of the border in the past month or so. The Chinese government was infuriated by the deaths in its southwestern province of Yunnan, and warned of a decisive response should there be any repetition. But Myanmar uh, groveled. Myanmar's side will go after and punish in accordance with the law. Those responsible will also strengthen internal controls to avoid such an incident happening again, said the defense ministry. Two Walmart employees ridiculed a Louisiana breast cancer survivor after they mistook her for a man in the women's restroom. She said Johanna Utzman urged Walmart to create a sensitivity training program for its employees after she was mercilessly mocked inside a West Monroe, Louisiana store just weeks after she finished chemotherapy. The mother of one and a grade, and grade school teacher had a double mastectomy, mastectomy last year and completed her last of eight rounds of chemo last month. She went to Walmart on Friday night with her husband, wearing her hat instead of her usual wig. When she went to the store's bathroom, two Walmart clerks followed her and yelled, Sir, you cannot be in here. 
She explained in a Facebook post, the employees realized she was a woman when she turned around. The, heart, the pair ran out giggling but returned moments later when she was in a stall. The same employees came back into the restroom and were laughing and giggling, exclaiming at the top of their lungs, that was a woman. She looked like a man. Regional Walmart leadership apologized to Utsman and said the store is investigating its two employees who have been suspended during the probe. They offered her a free stall. No, they did not. And uh, a Colorado lawmaker issued an apology to an, a Longmont woman who had her unborn baby cut from her. He still was punished at the state capitol for making comments about the attack. Representative Gordon Klingenschmidt apologized to Michelle Wilkins in his weekly radio show online, online radio. I do want to apologize for my words last week because I was so angry I forgot to be compassionate. Last week on his show, he said, This is the curse of God upon America for our sin of not protecting innocent children in the womb. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, very quickly, what the frack? California oil producers used 200 acre feet of water, equivalent to nearly 70 million gallons in the process of fracking for oil and gas in California just last year. That's less than previously projected, state officials told Reuters this week. The practice has been criticized in the state, which is suffering through that drought we mentioned earlier. About 100,000 gallons of water is used on average in fracking. The state oil and gas supervisor says hydraulic fracking uses a relatively small amount of water. Previously, industry estimates said the fracking used about 100 million gallons of water in California in a year. The uh, state oil and gas supervisor said not all of the water used for fracking is fresh. Some portion of it is produced water, or water that comes to the surface during oil drilling that is not suitable for drinking or agricultural use. Uh, Of that amount of produced water, actually 387,000 acre feet, two-thirds was put back into the aquifers from which it came. Really? Is that a good idea? We get drinking water from the aquifers, don't we? Don't they? And oil and gas drillers were afoul of regulators on the average of 2.5 times a day in three energy-intensive states for mistakes such as wastewater spills, well leaks, or pipeline ruptures during the recent fracking boom. That's according to Bloomberg Business. He's got his fingers in the... uh, All you can say is, what the frack? Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations, over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world to the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, 7.490 megahertz shortwave on the mighty 104 in Berlin. Around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want it. HarryShare.com and kcsn.org and available as a free podcast from Sideshow Network SoundCloud iTunes TuneIn.com somebody else does it too I forget and we just like me not forgetting 
if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile in Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson here at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program and the playlist, the music heard here on, and your chance to order Cars I Talk t-shirts for yourself and everyone you don't like, all at harryshare.com. And me... I'm talking to you, and you're talking to me on the Twitter thing at the Harry Sharer. The show comes to you from Sensory Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy. Radio Network. So long from New Orleans.